Welcome to our best of the year. I look back at some of the great guests we've had here on On Brand. Up first, the always entertaining Malcolm Gladwell. In this clip, we learn Malcolm's inspiration for his most successful books like Outliers, Blink, and The Tipping Point, leading to a discussion of his new book, Bomber Mafia. Malcolm Gladwell, um, he is, of course, the, the head, has the podcast Revisionist History. His newest book, The Bomber Mafia, A Dream, A Temptation, Longest Night of the Second World War, is now in paperback. He's had five New York Times bestselling books, uh, The Tipping Point, Blink, Outliers, What the Dogs Saw, and Other Adventures, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, Note of Battling Giants, Talking to Strangers, We Should Know What People We Don't Know. Um, just the best description I've seen of him is a interviewer said he's 21st century's defining zeitgeist surfer. How do we feel about that? Well, it's uh, overly, uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's a, a massive overstatement. I'll take it, but I don't think it's true. I, but I'll take I, it. I wouldn't disagree. It's interesting. The whole premise of this uh, podcast is that, you know, kind of everything and everybody's a brand today. You know, every company, every institution, every person. And I thought that was a great, from my vantage point, as a brand, the guy thought it was a great description of your brand. Yeah, I get. I mean, am I a zeitgeist surfer? I mean, I'm <laughs> not sure I know what that means, but um, I do. Uh, I, I, you know, I'm not a writer who's indifferent to the to the kind of context in which I'm writing. Maybe put it that way. I'm not, you know, writing histories of 14th century, right? Um, you know, English, uh, the English, you know, English monarchy. But um, yeah, I'm I am attentive to. Um, and my tastes tend to kind of track what I feel like the tastes of the moment are. How do you, what, for instance, I love the, to just get the, the inspiration of just, for instance, Tipping Point. Where, where did that, I mean, or Outliers, where does it, I mean, Outliers, where was the first nugget where you go, okay, there's, there's something here? Well, Outliers is kind of funny. It was, um, you know, I've always been, I'd always been fascinated by the fact that so many, I moved to New York City when I'm 30 years old, and I, you know, become familiar with the kind of power structure of New York. And I I had, as someone who's not Jewish, was struck by the fact that so many of the most important lawyers in the city were Jewish. Right. Which doesn't, you know, if you if you have, if you're thinking about this naively, there's no obvious reason why they should all be Jewish. They really, when I say they're all Jewish, I mean, it's... Yeah, if I you hear you. a list... <laughs> I got you. As a Jewish 15, guy in New York, I, <laughs> I got you, brother. You, you don't have to explain. It's, it's, kind, of, it's kind of nuts, right, right? Right, So I was like, why? And then I started chatting with... Uh, I went around and started interviewing a lot of these guys. And I discovered not only are they all Jewish, but their, if, their resumes, their kind of backgrounds, family histories... We're all insanely familiar. They were all like, they all would, like a huge chunk of them went to City College, mm -hmm. parents in the garment industry. Uh, you know, they, they, none of them came from any kind of like great privilege or their parents weren't intellectuals. Their parents were working class or middle class. They didn't go to fanciest schools. When they went to law school, they went to NYU when it was a commuter school, not when it was a, you know, a, right, not right. the NYU of today. And I just thought the more I investigated this, the more, and you remember, you remember Joe Flom. Sure, of course. J Joe Flom, so the guy, basically the founding partner of Skadden Arts. Yeah, world yeah I started lawyer. with him, went okay. to see Joe. And he was in, you know, he was in his 70s by that point. And just had, a, I was like, Joe, what is going on? And he just like explained it. And that was the first, I think, the first interview I did for Outliers. And 
The thing about Joe Flom's explanation about why he was the most powerful lawyer in New York is that it had nothing to do with his own intelligence. Now, he's clearly a brilliant guy. Sure. But he, he explained the whole thing without any reference whatsoever to his own personal abilities. And that was where the seed of that book was. And for our listeners, just to explain, what, what did he explain? He said, well, you have to understand the way, it was very law-specific, but it was so fascinating. He was like, M&A law in the 50s and 40s was something that no reputable law firm would touch. It was considered disreputable to engage in the buying selling of companies, right. particularly if the company being bought was not Didn't consenting to, to the right, purchase. Right, right, right. Right. We, so we were in a, gen- we were in a fancy- gentleman's world at that point, right? Exactly. None of the fancy law firms would touch that work. So if you're Joe Flum and you're like a guy from the Bronx who doesn't look or sound or have the pedigree of any of these fancy lawyers and you want to be a lawyer, you do the stuff that no one else will touch, M&A. Yeah. He gets really good at M&A, and lo and behold, what happens? M&A becomes what corporate law is, where all the money is, right? In the 80s, and it explodes. And he was like, the fact that we were locked out and discriminated against paradoxically gave us access to allow us to create expertise in the most economically valuable area of the law. So it was like, of course, we're all Jews who went to City College because we were the guys who were doing the most disreputable form of law. Say with litigation. Right. Nobody would, no fancy firm would do litigation. Case and White, you think they're doing litigation? Right, you know, right. like beneath them. They're you not know, doing litigation. It's similar. I, I know you wanted to get into advertising your first job. I spent most of my life in advertising. My dad was in advertising. And very similarly, it was Jews and Italians. It was not a business that, you know, the, the high flouting wasps were in. So Jews and Italians were able to get in there, and that's why there were so many Jews and Italians in advertising. It was one of the pr- yeah. quote-unquote professions, but the door was much more open. But that, those explanations are about, they're about timing as much as any. That's what, I mean, I was so fascinated by timing in Outliers, and it remains a fascination. It's about, it is way, way, way underestimated about the particular set of advantages and disadvantages that come with your kind of generational moment. Yeah. Um, I mean, the hockey one just blows me away. Really fascinating. Oh yeah. Fascinating. Yeah, I'm still interested. Can you, can you just share, share that one with our viewers? I know you've gone over this a thousand times, but for my, some of my viewers who are not familiar with some of your books, it's just, they're just incredible stories. Yeah, this one was this observation that was made by a Canadian psychologist in the 1980s, that if you look at the roster of any elite hockey team in Canada... 40% of the players or more are born in the first three months of the year, January, February, March. Massively overrepresented. In some cases, it's actually more than that. And it's a puzzle until you understand, oh, the age cutoff for age class hockey in Canada is January 1st. And because Canada is so hockey obsessed, they start recruiting kids for all-star traveling squads at the age of nine. And at the age of nine, the kids that you think that you look at a group of kids and you say, I'm take the most talented ones. The talented ones are all the oldest ones. Yeah. If you're nine and you're born in January, you've got a 12 month head start. You've lived 15, a fifth, you've lived longer to serve. As a guy that was born in November 22nd, I, I grew up with that sports yeah. all year, all, all around. I was a kid. It's a big difference. Yeah. It's 10, yeah. 15, 20% of your life when there's a year difference when you're seven, eight, nine exactly. years old. Yeah. But the crucial thing, Donnie, is that the people involved in hockey did not recognize. They thought they were rewarding talent when, in fact, they were rewarding maturity, and they were blind to this fact. And by the way, 
I recently, this year, went back and looked at the roster of the 2022 Canadian National Junior Hockey Team. You know what you discover? If I were to read to you the roster, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mimic doing it right now. Here's what it looks like. I'm just going to read you their birth month. Ready? January, January, February, January, <laughs> March, amazing. January, February, December, January. It's the same. They, they haven't fixed the problem. <laughs> Basically, amazing. in a country that's obsessed with hockey, that's trying to, to select the most talented group of hockey players imaginable, they have they continue to leave half the talent on the table. To, to say if you're born in the second half of the year, basically you can forget it. That's why I'm always blown away when, when I interview, I've interviewed just so many wonderful authors, and whether it's Michael Lewis or Harlan Coben, and I'm just, as, and I'm somebody who comes to the creative world, but I'm just always so fascinated by the nugget, like what got it, what got it started? What revved that engine to, to make that pe- marvelous piece of work happen? I was in the library, NYU library, browsing in the stacks, and I ran across an article from the 1970s from the American Journal of Sociology by a guy who was trying to explain uh, why certain neighborhoods are much worse than others. And he used epidemic theory. He used theory from used epidemiological theory used to describe the spread of diseases to describe the spread of crime. And I thought, I remember here I am sitting in Bob's library, you know, fifth floor in the social studies, social science section, reading this and thinking, that is so cool. And that was the genesis. I was like, what if I wrote a whole book in which I used epidemiological theory to describe social processes? Yeah. Malcolm was great, wasn't he? Such a fun conversation. What a brilliant, brilliant guy. Up next, we'll hear from the talented Vanessa Williams. Listen as Vanessa talks about the courage she has maintained from obstacles in her childhood, her time as Miss America, and her experiences with racism in her career in home state of New York. Courage and, and courageousness has been kind of a, a cornerstone through your, your entire life. Uh, just, you know, uh, going back to winning Miss America and then the, the death threats that came, the racist death threats that came. Uh, in your book, you talk about, child, you know, being molested as a child and you talk about their abortion early in your life and you had a lot of obstacles. I do. I've, I've had a lot of obstacles, but the older I get, the more mature I get, I realize that so many people have had similar struggles and uh, it's wonderful when you can connect. I mean, it'll be 40 years next September when I was back when I was 20 years old and my life completely changed as a uh, a junior, uh, you know, wanting to go away from my junior year abroad in London. And, uh, you know, life's plans, you never know what's going to happen. But um, it's it's been... Uh, again, the older I get, I'm 59 now, and I look back at my life, and um, I'm where where I wanted to be. I'm on Broadway. This is what I planned on as a teen. I knew that it was going to be a tangible goal. If I worked hard enough, I could take the train into the city and do a good audition and get on a Broadway show. But to actually not only be on Broadway, but to have like experiences with Stephen Sondheim, who just passed away, and James Lapine, who's a good friend who I just had dinner with, and you know Bernadette Peters, who I just saw at Broadway Barks, and have relationships 
with these people that I idolized and worshipped and never thought that they would become friends. That's that's the thing that that trips me out. You know, working with Cicely Tyson and remembering that when I was a, a, a child sitting on my parents' bed and watching Sounder and watching the Diary of Miss, Diary of Miss Jane Pittman and, and seeing that stellar work and then getting a chance to work with her every night on Broadway, you know, uh, in, in 2013 and, and 2014 when we did Broadway that we also did LA and we also did um, uh, uh, Boston. So, I mean, those are the kind of things that, those are the kind of things that make me want to pinch myself because my dreams have come more of a rea- more of a, a reality than I ever could have thought about. Yeah, what, there's a there's a great line. I can't remember the movie now where, where somebody said, oh, it was in, in broadcast news where William Hurt says, to Albert Brooks, what do you do when your real life expectations and dreams have surpassed your your actual? He goes, you keep it to yourself. <laughs> You've been very very lucky. You um, yeah. interesting childhood. You uh, from your kind of uh, point of view, you were the, probably the first uh, African American girl who went from kindergarten to high school in Chappaqua, New York. We think, uh, you know, we don't know any others. And um, we moved in in 1964. We were the first black family to move into Millwood, which is adjacent to Chappaqua, all part of the Newcastle, uh, town of Newcastle. And, uh, you know, when I, when I, again, when I think back, um, you know, my parents really lived the American dream. They were both, my dad was from Long Island, from Oyster Bay, uh, you know, not a not a lot of money that he came from. My mother was from the inner cities of Buffalo, um, and both of them got educated. Both of them went to college. Both of them got their masters. Both of them decided to to teach and and raise a family in in Westchester while they taught. Uh, they owned property in Manhattan. That was a rental. They owned property in and the Poconos. They had. Um, property uh, in, in uh, up by Lake George and uh, Aus Sable Acres uh, and, and got a chance to put their two kids through college. So it was an opportunity that really, you know, I'm not the first kid in my, my, my school to, to go to college. My parents both have masters and both me and my brother do not have masters. So they really- You were, down, were one of the rare <laughs> downwardly mobile yuppies, right? I mean, not yuppies, <laughs> uh, but baby boomers, right? Yeah. Yeah, 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 exactly. That's, that's, that's so, um, you know, I, I, again, it's it's um, it was the right time, the right choices, and um, and the value of education is what was paramount in our household. You, uh, as a kid, how did you get into first performing? I mean, how did, what was the what was the first Vanessa Williams kind of like entree into the stage? Well, I was always dancing. My mom put me in dance class probably in in I don't know, when I was four or five. And um, and me and my brother and my cousins, we would always kind of do shows after we would have dinners and then set up chairs and always do like a show, you know, go on the, the hearth of the fireplace and sing along with whatever record was popular. Uh, so performing was very easy in our household. Of course, my parents are music teachers, so we always uh, got a chance to play our instruments and sing. And it was kind of not expected, but it wasn't unusual. And um, I think it was when I was in probably the first time I, I have dance recitals all the time, but the first time I started doing musical theater was, I think, in fourth grade when uh, we were studying Greece and we ha- our project was to do a 
uh, a play, a student written play. So we wrote the play and I wrote a song with some other school kids uh, called Where Out There, Men of Greece. And I got my recorder out and sang and then played recorder. along. And then of course, choreographed a recorder, exactly. Jesus. And then choreographed a dance and danced with a, a toga that I had made from some sheets that I decorated. So uh, I always knew that I loved to perform. Uh, so it started young, but then I... I continued to dance, of course, was in marching band and chorus and concert band and orchestra. But when I was in high school and started getting um, lead roles and doing summer theater, and I was like, this is easy for me. And then I realized I could actually major it in co- major in musical theater in college. You went, in to, Sy- you went to Syracuse, like, right? Went to Syracuse, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> And I had gotten into, you know, Carnegie Mellon and NYU and CalArts. And my parents like, we want you close. You're going to Syracuse. Is that part of Newhouse, the, the musical, the, the arts, or it's a separate school? It, it, Krauss. It's part of Krauss okay, College, okay, which is the, okay. the arts school. The arts school, yeah. okay, right. Um, yeah, yeah. So it was kind of uh, easy for me to transition. My parents were not, they never said, uh, get a real job. They recognized my talent. Yeah. But they said, you're going to have to, you know, do the work and, and get educated and we'll support that. How did the whole pageant thing come about? The pageant thing came out. The when, pageant, uh, the so pageant fresh- thing. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> when, uh, when your freshman year uh, of, as a musical theater major at Syracuse is your core year, you're just studying. So you're taking piano lessons and voice lessons and, uh, you know, and, and construction, Seth construction, all these cool things. And sophomore year, that's when you're allowed to uh, audition for shows. So the first thing I auditioned for was a, um, a musical review called Swingin' on the Star, which Aaron Sorkin was in. Aaron Sorkin was a musical theater major at Syracuse wow. University, by wow. the way. Yeah. Wow. So he was in it, um, and it was a, a kind of a, a review of Jimmy Van Heusen's song. So, uh, you know, like Pocket Full of Miracles, and uh, <laughs> I, I sang Love is Lovely the second time around. Um, and then from that, the, the next show was... Um, a golden apple and I got into that and then I did a show called um down at the landmark theater um heart and soul which was a um another review and I auditioned for the Syracuse stage is the rep theater up there and I auditioned for um there was a production of Cyrano de Bergerac and I got the part of it of the orange girl which is a small role but it would have gotten equity points for me to start my points to be an equity um you know an equity member on stage and it was in April, and um, the um, the show got canceled. And through each show that I did, I had a friend who was a classmate, and he knew somebody who was on the board of the Miss Greater Syracuse pageant. And he kept saying, you know, my friend wants to know whether you want to do this pageant or not. And I was like, no, 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 no. And then I had April free, and I called my mom. I said, do you think I should do this Miss Greater Syracuse patch? And she's like, is there money? I said, yes, do it. <laughs> so my parents didn't even come up because I'd gotten scholarships the past, the previous two years. But, you know, every everything helped to for, you know, against the, the tuition. And so I won uh, Miss Greater Syracuse in April, and I sang a song that I did in performance class. My buddy played piano. I bought a swimsuit down at Sibley's downtown in Syracuse. <laughs> And I was a dancer, so I was in great shape. And so I won Syracuse in April. Then I went to States, sang the same song. My friend played the same, you know, same song and piano. And then I won States in July. And then I was on my way to Atlantic City that uh, September, switched my song, uh, got some some uh, better clothes. And uh, the the pageant director was kind of grooming me. And I ended up winning, you know, Miss America that September. And 
I was supposed to go to London to, to start my, you know, London, my, my year abroad over there. Uh, so I had already had my down payment there. My, my, my girlfriend, my roommate was already waiting for me. So I had no idea. I mean, I knew that I had the stuff to happen, make it happen. But right. in 1983, there had never been a woman of color to to win. That's, and you were 19, 20 years old. I mean, you were a kid. 20 years old. 20 years, 20 old. years old. You, so you get home that night. You got, I guess you take your crown home. Uh, <laughs> well, you don't know. You don't even go home. Oh, you don't, they, 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 oh, they, they, oh. They, they take you on the tour at that point. You're, that's yeah, yeah. It. yeah. I didn't yeah. make it. I didn't make it home again till I think October or so right. for maybe a, a day or so. And then maybe it was Thanksgiving, but you're on the road every other but day. What do you, what would, what's going through you? I, I mean, you crown Miss America the, the most, I don't even know what adjective to use, the most beautiful, most talented, the uh, most uh, ideal, the idealistic, idealistic <laughs> young woman in America is Miss America. So what's what's going through your head as a kid? Well, you got to think of the age, the time though. It was we're not talking the 1950s where you know Burt Parks is sure. saying and there she is, right. Miss America. This is '83. Burt Parks wasn't even part of the pageant. Being viewed for your looks was not the ideal that the women's right had moved so so far ahead for. And um, so that's why I never thought it would happen because I never thought that I was a pageant girl, nor did I ever aspire to be Miss America. Um, so when it did happen, it was kind of a real um, a comeuppance with my personal views on who I was. I mean, I was the first Miss America to say I was pro ERA. I yeah. got heat from the get-go. It's amazing. Uh, from the first night because I was, you know, asked about my opinions and I was very free about my Freedom, freedom of choice. Uh, do I think the ERA should go uh, ahead? Um, Geraldine Ferrara, fantastic. I'm glad a woman is is finally running. So these were very um, outspoken and sometimes uh, not welcomed um, views from Miss America. So I, the 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 writing was on the wall from the get go. <laughs> and also, yeah, going down south. I mean. Growing up in New York, and you know, it's different. About- yeah, you know, I mean, for New York, for you, the first woman to call Miss America was a, was a great non-event in New York, and mm-hmm. parts of the, chunks of this country, you were like the devil. I mean, it's just incredible. Yeah. One of my favorite episodes of 2022, Vanessa Williams, amazing. Now let's hear from Deepak Chopra. This was a great conversation. We dive into defining stress, how to let go experiences in order to find joy, and money's role in happiness. Take a listen to Deepak. So right now, if I'm, I'm feeling stressed right now, I'm going through a stressful period of my life without going into details or, you know, just, uh, just in, this is, how is this affecting, right? Take me through right now. Say, Donnie, you're going through stress. You're having relationship issues or you're having work issues. Or you're having financial issues or whatever it is. How then that kind of, Fucks up my body. <laughs> Take me through that math, if there is a math for that. Okay, so first you have to understand what stress is. So when you look at stress or how biologists define stress, or for that matter, psychologists, the way stress is defined is that it's the perception of threat. Whether that threat is physical or financial or a marital situation or you know, a business professional engagement, but somewhere in your awareness, you are interpreting that experience as a threat to you. 
physical threat, emotional threat, financial threat, relationship threat, whatever. Knowing that, it is actually uh, at a deeper level resistance to what we call existence. <laughs> because existence includes everything. Pleasure, pain, joy, sorrow, birth, death. You can't have only the good without the bad. All experiences by contrast. So if you go really deep into the nature of stress, it's the worst use of your imagination. Everything that you think is stress is in your imagination. This moment without interpretation, there's no stress. So, you know, I had never heard the word stress till I came to the United States. And, you know, when I saw these conferences where people were talking about stress, and talking about high blood pressure and, you know, all the consequences of stress, weakened immune system, disruption of hormones, lack of sleep, disrupted relationships, I realized it was just uh, in the imagination. The best use of imagination is not stress. The worst use of imagination is stress. The best use of imagination is creativity. So creativity comes when you go beyond thought. Uh, artists are creative people um, because they're not logically trying to figure out how to create a painting or how to write a symphony. Um, artists are also, of course, tortured souls when they're not in the flow of art. but. Stress is a human creation. Animals don't get stressed. You know, when you go to the African safari, you'll see that when a lion is chasing an antelope, in the moment, there is stress for the antelope. But as soon as the kill is over, they're back to normal. So they don't ruminate about it. If you kick a dog, it also has memory. So after 10 years, if you meet that same dog, it will attack you. But unlike a human being, it won't plan or imagine for 10 years how to get even. That's a human trait. But you, you, you say that stress is, is in the imagination. What if, you know, when people are having stress, if I'm having real life stress about a relationship, how is that, how do I channel how, that's In my mind, that's very real. I can, I can articulate, well, here's what's going on, and I'm having these stressful situations in, in, in a romantic relationship. How do you then channel that and say, well, no, it's because it's very real. How do you make that not real? And how do you channel that stress? And and all the things that you're saying are, I don't don't want to say theoretical because they make sense, but then how do you then, how how do I put that? I'm going to say to you now, let's create a situation. Okay, I'm breaking up with a girlfriend and it's very stressful and and I don't know what to do about it and I'm feeling stress and it's affecting my body and okay, now I turn to you, Deepak, and I go, well, how do I channel that more positively? What, what do I do with that? So, Johnny, uh, do me a favor. Close your eyes right now and ask yourself, I wonder what my next thought is going to be. Now wait for it. So what happened? Open your eyes. I went to some, an issue about the relationship. I see. So you started to identify with that thought. If you just watch it and not identify with it, you'll see it arises. It's there and then it's gone. It's only when you identify with it that you experience stress. It's like the breath, you know, if you watch your breath, there's no resistance. But if you hold on to it, you'll suffocate. So you hold on to any experience, you'll suffocate. And the key in all spiritual wisdom traditions 
is that you're not your thoughts. You are the observer of your thoughts. And if you, are, if you observe your thoughts just like clouds that come and go in the sky, and the sky is forever untarnished, you are the sky, the mind is your thoughts. The sky is pure awareness that allows experience to come and go because that's what happens. All experience is ephemeral. All experience is transient. All experience is ungraspable. The problem with humans is they try to grasp experience. They want to repeat the experience if it's pleasure and they want to recoil from it if it's pain. But life is both. And ultimately, it's neither because who you are is independent of the mind. The very fact that you can be aware of the mind means you're not the mind. The very fact that you can be aware of the body means you're not the body. The very fact that you can be aware of the world means you're not. The, the, the awareness of an experience is not the experience. But if the experience is, if I'm worried about money and I'm worried about, okay, I'm, how am I going to pay my bills and, I'm, and that's stressing me out, that's an experience that is in my real life. So how do I take the stress out of that? By going to the source of all thought and creativity. And that's a silent mind. If you can learn to experience a silent mind, not a positive mind. A positive mind can be very turbulent. You know, you uh, like a negative mind can be turbulent. But a silent mind is a creative mind. So in my new book is actually inspired by a lyric from... Uh, Bob Marley, who said, uh, uh, some people are so poor, all they have is money. So when I heard that, I started to look at, you know, what makes people happy. And what I found is 50% of your happiness experience every day comes just from your attitude. Is the world a problem or is it uh, opportunity? Even during the pandemic, people found opportunities. They created new technologies, new vaccines. Um, Zoom, this technology we are using. A lot of people who actually benefited from the pandemic because they were not, they were looking at opportunities instead of adversity. So 50% of your daily happiness experience comes just from that. Are you looking at the world as a problem? And if you are, then you're part of the whole hypnosis of social conditioning. The really creative people are looking at every problem as an opportunity. Number one, money adds 10% to your experience of happiness. So if you win the lottery today, you will be very happy. You'll be ecstatic, $100 million. In six months, you will return to your baseline attitude to life. And in one year, you'll be more stressed because you will be parking in the Bahamas and trying to figure out how to pay your taxes right. and how to avoid <laughs> them and watching the stock market. And everything in your body will be determined by that identity, which is net worth. Net worth should not be confused with self-worth. So only 10% of your experience of happiness comes from money. And as I've looked at people who are, who are unhappy, I see it's the extremely poor because they can't survive without money. And then it's the extremely rich because they confuse net worth with self-worth. And all abundance, by the way, I've seen is by comparison. If you live in a house that's $500,000, but your neighbor's house is 
million dollars, you'll be unhappy. But if you have five hundred thousand dollars and the neighbor is hundred thousand, sure, you'll be very happy. Yeah. So it's, it's all by comparison and comes from ego identity. And then there's a third component to happiness, which is the remaining forty percent. That's your daily choices. So we make daily choices every day of two kinds: one for personal pleasure, which means uh, entertainment, alcohol, sex, food, etc. And those choices also make or shopping. Actually, shopping is the number one uh, way that human beings seek pleasure in our society. Interesting. It's a we call each other consumers, which is a very kind of ugly word. Yeah. Uh, to refer to a human being who's literally a stardust being from with self awareness, we call them consumers. So shopping is the number one activity of humankind, especially in the West, for pleasure. Do those choices make us happy? Actually, they do, but only for a short time. Up next, Katie Turk. Katie shares about some of her more interesting conversations with Trump supporters and the sexism she faced in the start of her career. Here we go. So let's move to the career, the the, the life and times of the Katie Turk career. You started in local. You started. Was the local news before the storm chaser or after? Which 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 yeah, came? Yeah, local you, news before. Okay, local. Let's. I want. I what would really hit me about, and you did a lot of, I remember you was doing stand-ups in New York at WPIX and WNBC, and what, the story that blew me away, because it wasn't from 1953, it was from 19, it was from 2010, or I, I, give or take a year or two, or 2008 or 2000, that there was a story about the local news director, or, or whoever he was, taking out his book in the binder about what your hair should be like, and the size of your breasts and things like that. I, this was not from another century. That was like 10 or 12 years ago. It was 2006. 2000, okay. It was just 16 years ago. I mean, that was not another, not another, not another era yet. That talk, talk, no. Take me into that room with you. But it felt like another era. So yeah. I, was a, I was applying for a job at News 12, uh, Brooklyn, the Bronx. And I um, had gone through the reporter trial. You have to like produce a whole tape and prove that you can do the job on your own, which is shooting and editing and reporting and writing, doing everything. Um, and so I made it to the trial. They were going to offer me a job. Congratulations. But you can't be on air. Your face cannot be on my television. Your voice can, but your face cannot be on TV until I approve the way you look for television. And I sat in this guy's big office in the Bronx and he leaned back in his chair and, and he just said, you know what? Your boobs are too big for your clothes. And he might not have said boobs. He might have said breasts. He might have just gestured with a pencil. I don't remember exactly. But the, the, in the moment, it was, your boobs are too big. You got to find some different clothes. And I, I nodded my head and I thought, what an, what an a-hole. Also, like, I guess this is just part of the, <laughs> this is just part of the deal. Right. I mean, the guy had a reputation um, for, yeah, he had a reputation. Let's just put it that way. And um, then he handed me a, a binder full of pictures of women. <laughs> I joke in the book that it was like, you know, Mitt Romney's binder full of women. This was a right. binder full of right. women. <laughs> and the photos were um, like the, the type that you would see on the wall in a salon yeah, at a mall. Black and white headshots. headshots and they were all yeah. like, you know, short blonde haircuts, very severe bobs and streaky highlights. And at the time I had this, you know, I've got my hair now. Normal hair, longer. right. right. Hair. And I thought, oh, God, I really don't want to cut my hair. And I tried to avoid it. But after a few weeks, I realized that if I did want to be on air, I had, I'd have to do what he said. I brought it to the salon and, and the, 
And the stylist looked at it and he was like, oh my God. <laughs> Where's this 1983 picture coming from? Oh my God. He's it's like, amazing. what is this? It's amazing the dopes, the dopes in our business. I mean, it's not even him. I mean, I had an assignment editor at one point at another station say to me, hey, do you, I want to send you out in this story on, on pole dancing. because It's a new exercise fad. And, and I want you to participate. Do you have stripper heels at home you could wear? And I remember thinking like, oh, <laughs> oh. This is gross. Stuff us guys Ugh. don't didn't have to go through. Talk, yeah, Donnie, did anyone ask you if you have stripper heels? Nobody asked me if I had stripper story. heels. Nobody asked. I I was it's interesting because it's not been talked about a lot. I do remember in business when I was running my ad agency by being um uh objectified by female clients and you you know you kind of have to flirt back. You know, they're you're on the on the sell side of the equation. So you know, I remember what, I worked for this woman pub, publisher of a big magazine, and she was older. And I remember walking into a room, and she and it was all women. And she said to her, uh, her colleagues, "This guy's got a great ass, Donnie. Turn around." You know what I mean? <laughs> I just remember like, and then what did I do? I turned around. You know, you you do what you got to do. Because well, you you feel the pressure in the moment yeah. to 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 accept whatever the person in charge is saying. Yeah. Because you, you know they're in a position of power, and yeah. like, the, and you need something that they have. You yeah. are trying to get something they have, and in this case, you know she was business, the business that you needed. Yeah. And for me, it was I wanted to be a reporter. How did the pop come from local WNBC to the, the call up to network? Um, I was working at local, and I got a chance from Brian Williams, who had watched. Was obsessive about local news. Yeah, and he, he started he local. Brian was started was a CBS exactly. anchor in New York. And he's yeah. a huge supporter of local. The news. best guy, one of the best. By the way, for our viewers, one of the best guys around. I mean, you what you see on TV Hands is down. like just and, and fun, one of the funniest people alive. Generous, just and we're going to see our next act pretty soon from Brian. I think he's wonderful, and I hope he does something along the lines of late night because he is very funny. Yeah, and if I very predict, dry. I think he ends up on a cable Bill Maher type. Thing that's where I would have to predict he ends up. Is going, it James you know? Corden leaving? Maybe that's where he'll land. Good land there. Good land there. It wouldn't be the craziest. Um, thing. And it would he be great at it? He's really he's great. Great interviewer. He's funny. He's got great banter. Anyway, so he so I met him at a few years before at the Olympics, and I had showed him a, a story that I did, and he liked it, and so I was on his radar. And a few years later, when I was at WNBC, he said, do you want to do a story for Nightly on the 2nd Avenue subway? It'd be great to, to get you into, into the mix. And I grabbed the opportunity. I was thrilled by it. After that, ABC saw it. And ABC said, okay, hold on. Let's hire her for, for ABC Network. I think they were in kind of a war with Brian. I think right. There was some personal animosity there. Um, and then Brian said, no, wait, hold on. She can't go to ABC. She's got to stay at NBC. <laughs> And I, I was able to to jump from local to network. Um, it was awesome. I'm so happy. And I don't want to say a big break, but a, a, a serendipitous moment was when they tapped you to like, all of a sudden there was a lot of noise coming from this crazy candidate named Trump. And, you know, all of a sudden was, maybe we should have somebody out there on, on the trail with him. Talk about how that came about. I was living in London, Donnie. I was supposed to be right now a foreign correspondent living overseas, married to some French guy. That that right. was that was my life's trajectory. Right. And then I got totally derailed when I came back to say hello and Donald Trump announced he was running for president. And NBC said, well, why the hell would we put a, a political reporter on him? He's not going to last more than a few weeks. We'll put Katie on. She's here. Right. She's not doing anything. <laughs> and so I got I got put on it. My life got turned around. Obviously, the country's trajectory got turned around. Was there a around. moment you remember covering him where you went, wow, this is, 
there's something, we're not in Kansas anymore. Something's happening here that is something I had not anticipated. The world had not anticipated. You were, because you, you were there. I mean, you were feeling it in a visceral way that not, that yeah, obviously we, we lived it all on TV and we, and I've known him for years also. But do you remember a moment where you were like, this is, this is serious stuff? Yeah, so very specifically, it was John McCain. When he was going after John McCain in the summer of 2015, um, the writing, everyone said, was on the wall. You can't go after John McCain. Yeah. You can't go after another Republican. You can't go after a war hero, especially. No way. Republicans will not stand for it. He's done. I got a call from somebody at the RNC saying he is done. He's never going to make it. He's out. This is going to be over in a couple weeks' time. Um. And I went to a rally in Mobile, Alabama, a few weeks later, a few days later, so close after. And there were more than 20,000 people there lining up all night, waiting in the rain and the heat to see Donald Trump. And I asked them, do you care about the McCain comments? I don't care. Screw McCain. Nobody cared. Yeah. And it felt like there was a real disconnect between what the assumptions were of the party and what the voters of the party actually wanted. Do you remember a, a particular conversation you may, may, may probably never made the air you had with somebody at one of those rallies that was kind of one of the most frightening conversations you ever had. We, we, we look, we've seen ad nauseum, the Trump voters, the, 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 the MAGA, I'm not talking about Trump voters because a lot of decent people voted for Trump, but the crazy MAGA is that we see. Do you remember one conversation where you went, whoa, whoa. It was not, it was not at a rally. It was actually at the RNC convention. Um, in 2016, and it was from a, a lawmaker, a Republican lawmaker. Um, and I was talking to them about Trump, and he looked at me and he said, this guy's nuts. I, I would be afraid to give him the nuclear codes. Yeah. Well, this guy's crazy. And it ended up being one of the people who would defend him publicly. And I remember thinking, holy cow. <laughs> holy cow. Yeah, more holy cow. What an about face. And it was... It was jarring. My thanks to my guests today and all of my guests that made 2022 such a fun year for us here on On Brand. Happy New Year to everybody. Thank you for listening. Here's to a great 2023. We'll see you in the new year. Have a safe and happy new year. 